This is a Partially Examined Life episode preview. You'll find the full episode available for purchase in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single, convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps. You're listening to the Partially Examined Life, a philosophy podcast by some folks who at one point set on doing philosophy for a living but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 42 is, how does human nature, and specifically moral psychology, vary by sex? And we've read the first three chapters of Carol Gilligan's In a Different Voice from 1982, and also Charlotte Perkins Gilman's novel Herland from 1915. My name is Mark Linsenmeyer, running on girl power in Madison, Wisconsin. <laughs> this is Seth Paskin. Parthenogenically replicating in Austin, Texas. This is Dylan Casey just sitting around in Middleton, Wisconsin. And this is Azura Crispino enjoying a beautiful sunset in Parker, Colorado. Very nice. So, wow, this is a historic event. First of all, welcome back, Seth. You've been gone for so long. Thank you so much. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to be doing this as opposed to what I have been doing for the last couple of months. And do you wish to reveal any of that, or should we just pass over that? Let's in pass over it in silence. Okay. I have I have smeared the blood of the lamb above my door, if you will, to let the angel pass over. But just to clarify, your absence for the last four episodes does not mean that you're going to be intermittent. That you were just gone, and I that is back. correct. And uh, you might be surprised to hear Dylan for the third episode in a row, people. But we'll say no more about that, other than we really like having Dylan around. And Wes has not quit. He will be back. But he just didn't want to do this one. And our star this evening, Azura. Welcome back. It's a pleasure. Longtime listeners remember Azura from our second Kant episode, Kant on Knowledge, well over a year ago. And the reason that we had gotten in touch with you in the first place, right, was to find somebody who knew something about feminism. So this has been in the works for a long time. Yes, it has. And the uh, readings that we did this time were eventually selected by (laughs) by Zura after I harassed her for months and months and then selected her land. And then I read that whole thing and said, that's not enough for a discussion. So, and you had said, but the Gilligan was extremely influential on your development, right? We had thrown out a lot of different ideas and there were various different constraints. So I'm not sure that I would say that I actually made the final decision, but I mean, I think we came together in a consensus kind of way to do that. But one of the reasons... That's such a gender specific way to characterize that. It's very Herlandish. That's right. Mark was trying to give you absolute credit, and, and you contextualized it. So this is how it's going to be. No, I think that's an interesting point, but part of the reason why I really like Carol Gilligan's In a Different Voice is that one of the major questions that I think comes up a lot when people are trying to get into feminism is this idea of to what extent are these differences inherent and to what extent are these differences culturally constructed? And I fall more into the culturally constructed camp. And what I like about Gilligan's work is that she does a really good job of talking about, I think, how girls and women think about these ideas conceptually differently, but she's really context in this perspective of, on one hand, that girls are raised differently in the sense that they have this closer female parent and then they develop differently. So anyway, I just thought that it would be a good foundation 
for us to discuss, especially because Care Ethics is such a big branch. And then Herland, I really like because the three of you are men. And I wanted to give you sort of a way to think about what it would be like to be a woman absent the thought of man. And that's what Gilligan is really exploring in part that I found particularly valuable. You mean Gilman. Did I just do that again? <laughs> We're going to have this trouble the entire time. We picked two authors that have nearly identical names. <laughs> Should we just call them Carol and Charlotte? No, that's no better. <laughs> So yes, there's many, many branches. We wanted to do something on feminism from the start of this. I know that the parts that I studied of that in grad school were more in the uh, sort of neo-Marxist continental camp of once you understand Marxism and understand moral relativism and some of the crazy existentialist stuff, feminism seems to branch right out of that. Kristeva, right, being the main figure mm -hmm. there. But this is not that. This should be easier for our listeners to get a handle on and won't require the background of folks that we have not yet done episodes on. So maybe we'll get to that harder stuff later. Neither of these is officially a work of philosophy, right? I mean, they're both studied in philosophy classes, but one's a novel by Gilman and she was a sociologist. I don't know which version of the book you guys read. Of Herland? Of Herland, yeah. But the one I have is actual hardback. And the introduction by this woman, Anne Lane, is actually quite extensive and goes into some detail about her life. She's very interesting. That's a good place to start, that we'll talk about her and we'll talk about Herland a bit. It's more dramatic than the Gilligan, and it can get some of these themes out there. So she was born in 1860. She's somehow related in a kind of extended way to the Beechers, Harriet Beecher Stowe and Henry Ward Beecher, mm. that, that family somehow related to her father. And they were uh, very poor. She had a brother and they grew up in a very poor home and moved frequently when they were kids. She got married sort of reluctantly and after the marriage became deeply depressed and consulted a well-known Philadelphia neurologist who specialized in women's nervous disorders. So... At the time, the cure was a rest cure to basically put you into isolation, remove all reading, writing, that sort of thing. It almost made her go insane, and she rejected it and then fled to California, abandoning, essentially, her husband and the child that they had had. She got much better in California. She tried to reconcile with her husband. It didn't work. So they got a divorce, and she got the daughter and moved to California. Long story short is she stayed out there. She did some writing. So she wrote something called The Yellow Wallpaper, which mm -hmm. is an autobiographical story of a woman who basically has a mental breakdown. And this brought her some notoriety and she ended up getting involved in women's associations and literary circles and so forth on the West Coast. And I had read that in, I think, a horror anthology. Yeah, yeah. The wallpaper is really creepy. Maybe it's haunted. The author of the introduction says it could be placed in the tradition of black comedy, although its comic quality has not been previously acknowledged. <laughs> Very black. Yes. Anyway, she became quite involved and outspoken in women's rights. At one point, she was attacked because she had abandoned her child. After that, she kind of left California and just traveled around the country lecturing and being a part of activities and so forth. It was kind of out of that activity that she wrote another apparently more famous book than Herland called Women in Economics. And she got some international notoriety for that. For the rest of her life, she was quite prolific as a writer, writing both fiction and nonfiction. When she was about 40, she married one of her cousins, and they lived together for some time until he died, and then she died shortly thereafter. And she did not breed with her cousin? No, no. I suspect it was probably one of those very 
upper class, East Coast, arranged marriage type situations. It would have been very in keeping with her love of controlled breeding to keep those genes, those Gilman genes yes. strong or the Perkins genes. And apparently during her lifetime, she was extremely well known, had a great amount of infamy as well as fame. And then a generation later was completely forgotten. Well, in this book from 1915, right? Correct. Appeared in serial form in a magazine she published herself, Forerunner. There's actually a sequel to Our Land that I did not look at. It kind of reads like an H.G. Wells it's novel. It's awesome. Like Journey to the Center of the Earth. Azuras, thank you for sharing this with us because I enjoyed reading it so much. It does read exactly like one of those turn-of-the-century science fiction adventure kind of stories. It was so much in that style. It was pure enjoyment. I'm glad. Of course, if you're reading it just for the philosophical content, you can skip the first third. Because That's the best part. <laughs> it's just the... And then our plane... I'm cra or, you know, we're, we're climbing mountains <laughs> and... Uh, as Azura had said before, the point of this is that this is a lost society of just women. All the men were killed off. By their own demise, right? Is part yeah. Of the important part. Yeah. Most of them, weren't they killed off by a volcano or something? But then just the ones that were slaves were left... And they were just obnoxious and tried to take over. And so they were all killed off. Right. As opposed to just keeping a couple around for breeding. <laughs> so that just shows you that those women just did not have foresight. You need to set the stage a little bit better than that, Mark. <laughs> Go for it, Seth. So this is a utopian novel. Like all utopian novels, you have to have some kind of an origin story for how you come across this isolated civilization that somehow manages to keep itself distinct. These three guys are adventuring and the guide tells them of this mysterious land that nobody goes where there are only women. And they, of course, don't believe it's true. The whole concept is that this thing is sort of elevated up in this remote mountain range and it's sort of sealed off from the rest of the world by the mountain range. And the origin story is that at one point there was a pass that was open down to the lower lands, but at one point there was a war going on between the lowlanders and the highlanders and all of the men of this highland village were down fighting the lowlanders and a volcano erupted and sealed off the pass so that only the women and the miscellaneous few slaves at the time were open. And this was 2,000 years ago. So they've had 2,000 years of living without men in this isolated utopia. But you have to explain the origin of them continuing on, right? That is correct. I would be happy to, but I don't want to monopolize the conversation. Oh, it's not a conversation yet. Go ahead. <laughs> well, as you said, the men essentially die out or are killed. And the women who are there resign themselves to basically living out the remainder of their natural lives until everybody is dead. Then a miracle happens, and you'll have to read the book to get the details, but essentially one woman miraculously gets pregnant and gives birth to a girl. I want to put a hiccup in that because I think that it's important, at least in terms of the context of the point of view about science, which I don't know that we should really talk in detail about in the book, but the woman who has the first child, Gilman writes about it as a kind of evolution, a parthenogenic birth that had very Darwinian undertones of the kinds of things that happen to other sorts of animals if they're left in isolation. It was not divine in the sense of immaculate conception, that is a impregnation by a deity or something like that that kind of thing. It's wholly within the physical being of this woman that this happens. Yes. And I apologize if that's the way it came across. What I meant to say was it was taken as such by the community because the religion of the society is like an earth mother sort of basis. They revered this Ur mother as a divine 
what closer to the divine maybe is what I'm looking for. She doesn't characterize the society as viewing the woman as evolutionarily superior. That to me is something that comes out later over time. And I can see I'm looking at the Wikipedia page for parthenogenesis here and it says, in many cases, parthenogenesis occurs when one gender, typically the male, is unavailable in the general vicinity. Once males are again available, the parthenogenesis created uh, females would be capable of mating with the males and creating normal offspring. Apparently, this does happen in some kinds of animals. It can sort of turn on and off. That's pretty weird. <laughs> it is weird, but it's true. So this is what she was thinking of, at least, in putting this forward. Yes. So this original mother has a girl child, and then she proceeds to have four more girl children. And then those five girl children each proceed to have five girl children, and so on and so forth. And kind of the original people that are there die off, and all you're left with is this one branch of parthenogenically replicating mothers. Who, strangely enough, are not all identical twins. No, but no they are not. <laughs> she didn't know that much genetics. And so when these guys climb this mountain, these three adventurers, and they get up into this society, they encounter this relatively homogenous utopian society that's 100% women who reproduce parthenogenically and have been doing so for thousands of years and have created this utopian society. But since you're talking about breeding, that part of this is they don't just have five kids. They can control it. They sort of have some special feeling that they know that it's going to happen. And if they involve themselves in a lot of other activities or something like that, then they won't. But that comes after the period of time where they run up against the limit of their resources. So they voluntarily control. They realize they can voluntarily yes. control the number of children. So in fact, not all of them have children, but most of them do. And, but you only have one. Right. And it's only a rare few. They get to have two, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And that becomes the key mechanism of social control, right? Not only have they developed customs and actually social aspects, but just if somebody just seems to be less than optimal in some way, then that person does not breed. That is correct. Well, Azura, where should we take this next? Well, so one of the things that I thought was really interesting in the beginning of the book is when the three adventurers are trying to speculate as to what a society only made up of women will be like. The thought is that women, as that word is being used right now, understand each other relationally towards men, right? That to be a woman means to try to be attractive to a man and that this requires all sorts of actions and ways of being and ways of dressing and so on and so forth. And what I think Gilman does a really good job of doing is to set up the expectation from the two male adventurers of this is what these women are going to be like. And then she completely shatters that impression as soon as they actually arrive at her land, which I think is philosophically relevant. Exactly along those lines, it's interesting that the whole point of view of the novel is written as a kind of travelogue from the point of view of one of the male adventurers. And in fact, it's never told from the point of view of any of the women in her land. <laughs> it's always told from the point of view of these men. And you have, in particular, the narrator, Van, and his two compatriots. And they each represent pretty clear, stereotypical styles of men. You know, a kind of manly man in Terry and a kind of, I don't know, more effeminate man in Jake. And then Van seems to me like something like Gilman's idea of an educable man that would, you know, listen and still be a man in some respects. I guess, learn something. I guess that's the big thing. He is of the three. He's the one that seems to be the one who actually genuinely changes his mind. 
And we could make comparisons and say which of the men <laughs> correspond to which of us, but we won't do that. <laughs> no. But, I mean, I think Azura's point was in the opening part of the book, they're speculating about what a society of women would be like. And they're thinking there can't be a society without men because women are incapable of rationally discoursing and coming to agreement that they're too catty or they're too passive. They kind of go through all these different modalities because they're thinking of the society women or the women of their class in the society they come from. And they're trying to imagine these women who live in some degree of luxury and are responsible for maintaining the home and having kids and then being catty with each other about others. And women don't operate in the public sphere of politics and economics and commerce and academia and all those sorts of things. So they can't imagine a society that's run by women because they can't imagine women in those roles. It's always fun reading a social commentary aimed at a different age <laughs> that you can have a little distance that, you know, it might have been an accurate representation that women were so marginalized at the time that she was writing that, yeah, she probably thought that most of the people in her social class who are women were very frivolous. You know, that's one of the ongoing themes in her work, that even when women are treated well and supported, they're not given any responsibility and they're just they're not built up into being impressive people to the detriment of everyone. Right. Well, and I think part of what she's trying to say is that the reason why the women are so frivolous and so on and so forth is because they have been so marginalized that their only yeah. option yeah. is to be able to attract a man. And in order to attract a man, all of this frivolity is now necessary. Because when we get to her land, there's this comment about, well, why would I wear a hat with feathers in it? You know, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You know, I need to be running around and climbing trees and being active and doing all of these things. I wanted to come back to the point about this being a, a travel log because Gilligan talks about this too in her first chapter, this idea that when girls go on an adventure, that it's a very different sort of adventure. When you think about mythology and Sleeping Beauty and Snow White, you have them falling into this deep sleep and all of this passivity. And so I think the fact that she contexts it, a male travel log adventure type story, is to sort of give the idea that these women are also themselves adventurous. But instead of their adventure being individual, it's context in the sense that the whole society is going through this adventure. You know, another tack she could have taken, I suppose, would have been to tell the origin story of her land from the point of view of like one of the observers of that initial parthenogenesis or something like that. You know, another way to do it would have been, again, starting from the origin and go through generations of women and tell a kind of mega novel story about it, but all from the perspective of the birth of her land. She clearly chose to do it this particular way, and it's effective in the sense that you can look back and tell the story of it having fully matured. In the end, you know, the last half of the book or so is really revealing the origin story of her land, but sort of looking backwards on it in this sort of fully mature state. Yeah, I think maybe despite the fact that we've talked about the origin here for a little while in this discussion, my initial impression was that's a storytelling device that we have to give some kind of origin, but that's not the point. The point is, what would a society be like when men are not around? Well, okay, part of that is then how could you have a society where men are not around? What would that mean? So the origin does matter in terms of we want to see what it's like, not the sudden absence of men, but really there's been a lot of development free of men and what would that be like? 
And there's some details, again, like the fact that there's this genetic engineering that, oh, that woman is a little too big for her britches. Let's not let her breed. The other women saying this. There's such a social consciousness that such a woman would be made to recognize that she she's not optimal as far as the breeding pool goes. That seems to be how most of these things work, right? They say some women are not optimal to be mothers. In other words, to be the full-time caretakers of children. In fact, most women are not appropriate for that. So it becomes specialized. And there's a recognition in the society that, yeah, that's the way it should be. I don't want my biological child being raised by me who is not optimally suited for doing so. I want to be able to interact with them, but I want the majority of that to go to somebody else. So, I mean, Terry, I mean, the men in the novel answer those questions. Well, what do you do about crime? What do you do about people who don't agree? And Gilman includes those things. But I think that they are sort of on the edges of a primary concern, which is the idea that that you have a, this society in which individuals have their orientation towards the whole group, and there's a kind of a consensus. And of course, at the edges, you know, we only hear a little bit about what happens at the edges of this consensus. In general, the things that they bring to bear to build the society, one of them is practical science cultivation and efficiency. They cultivate the entire plain, including the trees. You know, they breed the nuts together to figure out how to get the most efficient food production and all that kind of stuff. And they develop regimens of education and physical development so that they can, with the point of view of all flourishing, together at some level. So in that perspective, one of the, the hardest things for them to deal with, the men, is the disposition with respect to competition. The idea that society can only proceed and grow and flourish with the whip of competition, that's the point of view of the men. And they're flabbergasted that this society doesn't have competition. And at first they think there must be competition. That really pushes them along just in, in a way that they're not used to seeing. And in the end, Gilman seems to put forth the notion that there is no competition, not in anything remotely like the sense in which we normally think of it, but that nonetheless the society flourishes and progresses and develops, but in the absence of anything like genuine competition, but born out of cooperative activity towards a greater good. Right. So this is supposed to be saying ultimately something about that when philosophers have reflected on what is human nature, like Hobbes, mm -hmm. right, everybody is selfish. They just don't have women in mind. Yeah. And that's chiefly what this is supposed to be about. Well, that would be her response, that she would say, it might be true for men, what Hobbes says, but that isn't the way all society has to be. And here's an example that would be completely resonant with women's psychology or point of view. I don't know how you exactly would put it, but certainly it wouldn't be the only way you had to do it. And I suspect that Gilman would think that Hobbes was just wrong about men as well, because she has these three men. And the one that would be most like a Hobbesian man would be Terry, the guy who ends up being the reason for them getting thrown out and who simply cannot control himself and also is completely befuddled by the existence of this society. Whereas the other men don't seem to fit so well into Hobbes's picture of mm -hmm the way in which society works. So she offers an alternative that isn't just focused on women, but also holds, seems to me, forth the notion that, well, there is a gradation of psychology among the women in her land, as well as among the three men that she takes as token representatives of maledom. 
Can I go back to the food production for a second? What we were talking about with the nuts and so on? Please do. I think that's interesting when we think about it in terms of the question of competition. And also we were talking about earlier how a lot of the more theoretically context of philosophical work deals with Marxism and comes out of that tradition or is inspired by that tradition, if you want to say. And so I think it's kind of interesting that, you know, here they're talking about doing small scale, high yielding in the sense that it's compact type of farming. And And Gilman (laughs) is talking about this really at a time before the kind of industrialized farms that we see today. But you also see in her writing a hint that women would just not make the kinds of decisions that would lead to the kind of industrial farming practices that we have today, even though she's writing 105 years ago. And I find that really sort of interesting. When you say industrial farming, Azura, you mean the idea that you would farm for profit. Maybe I'm reading something into Gilman that isn't there, but I did want to bring up this point that part of what feminism talks about is this idea that the relationship that you have to your environment can be either exploitative or non-exploitative. And that part of what happens in competition and in capitalism is that you start to look at your environment in terms of how do I capitalize this asset? In other words, how do I squeeze as much out of it as possible? Not how do I do this in a way that is going to be cohesive and long going. So here she has a discussion of here's a society who's been here for 2000 years and they are having evolutions, but the kind of evolution that they're having is to have food that is going to be highly nutritious and that it all evolves together and that it's this really abundant ecosystem. They're not thinking about, oh, I want to start the next Coca-Cola. And I think that Gilman does an excellent job of expressing the values that Gilligan is later going to say are these feminine values and saying, if we take them to their natural conclusion, what kind of picture would that say for our society, both in terms of how do we produce goods? How do we distribute goods? How do we deal with household labor? Because even this idea of, okay, I give up my child for somebody else to raise That may seem really heartless, but I think a lot of women think to themselves, well, you know, but I also want to have a career and I want to do these other things and I want to be really involved and how can I possibly do everything? And in her land, it's very easy. I can give it to somebody who's more suited to that task and I can go back to, you know, genetically engineering tree nuts so that we can have this really bountiful harvest. And because it's all being done communally, I don't have to achieve that competitive status of I have to do everything. Right. And if you give it up, <laughs> it's not even completely giving it up because really there's so much communality about it anyway that you could still see the kid as much as the average working dad in this society would. So the question to me would be, does Gilman's Herland admit of the kinds of criticisms that one would make of Plato's Republic, one of which would be because of the specialization and the notion that each person has a metal soul of a particular kind that predisposes them to certain role in society, then you sort of have a neat bow around the building of society because every person that is a piece of society has a very defined role. And then it becomes kind of a question of arranging the parts properly. That's different than saying that each person is their own activity that might realize that activity in many different ways. And in fact, following Aristotle, might realize their activity in unoptimal ways. And so does Herland admit of the criticism of Plato's Republic that, well, there's just essentially no individuality here? 
that any kind of individual motion, individual determination is just utterly absent. And you're either having a situation where people are effectively coerced into being into the role in society that they're in, or you have an unreasonable expectation that people will just fall into their role in a natural way and not only accept it, but actually thrive in it. That's a sort of a standard criticism of Plato, right? To me, it's the former. And the interesting question is whether or not we believe that a society that was 100% created and run by women would be able to effectively accomplish this in a way that we don't believe it's possible in Plato from the perspective of having men involved. Oh, so that the third thought would be that because it's a society of women, a utopia of women, we avoid the difficulties that we would lay at the feet of Plato's Republic. That would have to be because the human nature of women is different than the human nature of men, or that Plato was wrong. It could be both. Or potentially both, yeah. That was my reading of it anyway. How about you, Azura? I don't know which way I necessarily want to jump on that question, whether Gilman is saying, well, this would just not be an issue because it's a society of women. I tend to think that that's not the answer that she would give. I tend to think that the answer that she would give is that this is a society where the priorities of the society are very clear and everybody has been indoctrinated into those priorities and accepts them to a certain point and sees the wisdom of them. But not only that, also has seen the futility of having other priorities be standard, right? Because there's this idea that they're all aware of how they came to be in this catastrophe and that these ideals of competition and these ideals of war were the reasons why they were in this catastrophe in the first place. So then we end up having a question of to what extent does individuation necessarily have to interlie with competition and necessarily have to interlie with war. But I see those questions as being really sort of tangential to what you were asking. Thanks for listening to this Partially Examined Life episode preview. If you're enjoying it so far, you can purchase the full episode in the music section of the iTunes store or at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash store. For unlimited access to our back catalog, you can become a PEL citizen at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash membership. Membership also includes access to discussion groups with other listeners, as well as ad-free versions of current episodes and a host of other bonus content, all available from a single convenient feed that you can use with a variety of podcast apps.